Hello everyone, my name is Paloma Ortiz Lopez, the founder of Avantgarde International and a career specialist. Welcome to the Diary of a Female Leader, the podcast in which we will share the journey of a variety of female leaders that are thriving in what people know as male-dominating environments. Thank you for listening. We're back with another episode of um, Diary of a Female Leader. Today I have with me Estelle Levin Nally. Hello, Estelle. How are you? Hey there, Paloma. Thanks for having me. I can see there is a sunny day in the UK today. We both have sun. That's not so common. <laughs> so true. It's beautiful. But I live in Guernsey. Oh, very nice. In the Channel Islands. Yeah, we've got a little bit more sun than the rest of the UK. <laughs> Excellent. Estelle. As every time in a diary of a female leader, I normally give a, a little bit of an introduction so our listeners can know a bit more about, about yourself uh, before we embark on, on your career's journey. I'm so excited about this conversation, by the way. <laughs> Good. Go ahead. So in your case, uh, I had to really select what I was going to put here because uh, Estelle, guys, uh, she's got a very accomplished career and, and that's why I'm so excited to start speaking to, to her because... She has done a lot and a lot of interesting stuff. So I'll start with a, with a shorter bio. So Estelle holds a master's and bachelor's degree in geography from the University of Edinburgh. She also has a master's degree in geography with a focus on sustainable development, natural resources, conflict minerals, climate change, feminism, and CSR from the University of British Columbia, where she was a Commonwealth scholar. She's also the founder and CEO of Levin Sources. She founded the company in 2010 as a catalyst to deliver more sustainable futures and protect human rights through better business and good governance in the mineral sector. Estelle is an internationally recognized leader in the sustainability and responsible sourcing of minerals. She regularly speaks at or moderates high-profile events, conferences, and webinars. She's also the chair uh, the Sustainability Committee for the Investing in African Mining in Daba. This is the biggest event in mining in Africa. Still, impressive career again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paloma. More to do, I hope. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Knowing you, I'm sure you will be <laughs> you will be doing many more things to add to that bio. Like I said before, I left, I left so many interesting stuff out just because I didn't want to kind of do the talking. I, I'd rather you tell us your, your journey uh, here today. So as is tradition in the in the area of a female leader, we always start talking about childhood, a, a beautiful part of our lives. So where did you still grow up? So I was born in Scotland, but we moved to Guernsey in the Channel Islands when I was two. My father was much, much older than my mother, and uh, he was 66 when I was born. So I had the privilege of an intergenerational parenting, mm -hmm. but it also meant that I had an elderly dad, and he was aware that he might not be around for all of our childhoods and early adulthood. So he really wanted to bring us a life where he could make sure we were taken care of in case anything happened to him. Mm -hmm. And Guernsey is a gorgeous place to grow up because it has you know, over 30 beaches. It's small. It's 40 kilometers circumference if you walk around it. And it is a safe and lovely place, which is also why I've returned here after being mm -hmm. away for many, many years. I came back in 2019 with my family and we've settled back here again. Yeah, so it, it was a 
a very happy childhood. Um, I went to an all-girls school. My husband jokes that every single one of my friends from that school are alpha females. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps true. And my, my, this was very evident at my hen party. (laughs) We, we, um, we got a narrowboat in the Norfolk Broads and, uh, (laughs) it was 10 women and one tiller. And it ended in fights with between friends. It was a it was a disaster. And I had friends tell me it was the worst hen party they ever went on because of the politics. But we all look back at that and laugh, I hope. Anyway, so that's a little bit remarkable. I love that story. And and here we come to one of my favorite questions uh, in the podcast. So what did Style want to be when you when you were a kid? Well, when I was really tiny, I wanted to be what I called a sewage dress which actually was my way of saying an air stewardess because I couldn't okay. say it properly. <laughs> but I think that's because from an early age, my family took me on holidays, usually to the Balearics or the Canary Islands. So not, nothing particularly glamorous and also back home to Scotland by ferry. And I got a bug for culture, different cultures, different languages and the concept of travel. But that dream kind of quite quickly faded. And then for really my teens, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Okay. I was a, a very capable singer. I used to perform semi-professionally. Oh, really? When I went to university, I used to perform in clubs. I was um, big into musicals and theatre. got heavily involved in that at university too. So there was a period where I thought I might want to explore music as my career. But I also really thrived with science and languages. And I was the only person in my year that was allowed to, for her GCSEs, not do any humanities. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, then I went back to the humanities for my A-levels and did a geography A-level. And then was like, yeah, do I really want to do geography. Geography is for people who clearly aren't very clever because there was, there, and there still is some prejudice and some view that geography is basically maps and crayons. So I, I went to Edinburgh and did biology. And then after a year and a half, I did a, a course in the history of science. And I just lit up and I loved it. And I thought, hang on, I'm interested in the relationship between nature and people, not just nature and nature, but nature and people. Where can I study that interface? Where can I get into that? And very luckily the geography department said, yeah, we'll just transition you in. So I, I did six months of year two geography and then went straight into finals for year three. And of course, in Edinburgh, it's four years, which is how you end up with the master's at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And that was thrilling. And it really appealed to my need for constant stimulation and constant learning through kind of very diverse things. And I, I just loved it. And I still didn't know what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I just knew I wanted to keep learning. I wanted to travel. And I was fortunate that I was able to get high grades in the things that I was doing, which gave me options. I always find that a a difficult question to ask. I guess what I wanted to do was I wanted to be happy (laughs) and I wanted to be free to do whatever I felt like at the time. So, yeah, so I ended up in minerals kind of by accident, not by intent. I'll I'll ask you a little bit more about how did you end up in the industry you're working in. I'm really keen to go back to your parents and how how was the role of your family and, and, you know, support system throughout those decisions? Uh, You tried a different education journeys, uh, but you, you landed in, in a good one. Well, I'm sure that they had a role there. Yeah. So my parents both left school before they were 15 Okay, and didn't get any qualifications. 
my dad left school at 14 to join the family business, which was the furniture factory and, and became a timber merchant who supplied timber to that factory and then others and built a quite a big business in Glasgow, which he eventually sold. I never really spoke to him about that, unfortunately, because I was young and conceited and self-interested and didn't appreciate the wealth of wonderfulness that I was sitting on with a dad like that. Mm-hmm. My mum my got an, an O-level, I think it was in English, something like that, and um, became my father's secretary, which is how they met. Mm-hmm. So my parents, my father was Jewish, and of course, in Jewish culture, education is really, really important. And he valued education. So this is why they sent me to the school they sent me to in Guernsey. But they gave me a lot of freedom to make my own decisions. And I think what was brilliant about the way they parented me was they were always supportive of whatever it was that I wanted to do. They didn't judge it. They didn't try and dissuade me. They just said, if this is what you want, we'll support you. Go and do it. Mm -hmm. So I did speak to them about, about these decisions. But I also took advice from other people. I remember when I was deciding which university to go to in Canada, I turned back to an old tutor instead to get advice who was Canadian. So I, you know, it wasn't just my parents that shepherded me and stewarded my decisions, mm-hmm. but they were so supportive. They used to drive me all, I mean, my climate footprint, my carbon footprint must be a disaster for my childhood because they drove me all around the island to all the various clubs I, I, I did. And I did many because, you know, I, my interests are diverse. And it was just, yeah, whatever we needed, me and my sister, they supported. It was very, very lucky. Very good. And can I ask you what happened to your singing career? Why didn't you pursue that, that option? What were the reasons? I remember sitting with a friend in London, Anthony, who is a comedian MC, a host, very talented performer. So in London, I, when I lived in London, I did have you know friendships with people who were in the industry. And also a lot of my friends from musical theatre in Edinburgh went in to theatre and entertainment and things like that, television and acting and so on. And I think there were a couple of factors. The first was I still had this really strong compulsion to do something that would like solve some some of the world's problems. I wanted to heal. I wanted to like, and, and you can heal with music, but I was the intellectual aspect of the complex issues we're facing mm-hmm. was so enticing to me. And I wanted to make, I wanted to be involved in that. But also, if I'm being completely honest, as a young woman, I didn't have a lot of body confidence. And I felt that in order to be successful in music, I had to look a certain way. And I didn't believe that I looked that way. And I think in hindsight, that was not the right reason to not sing but I felt it would prejudice against my ability. I was no Britney Spears in terms of, you know, pop singer category. I was more of a jazz, mm-hmm. blues, musical singer. And I did sing on television in Ecuador. Wow. In a national competition where the categories were pop, metal and death metal. Oh God. <laughs> and that's one of the only females that was singing in this, got interviewed by them later and they called me La Rompa Corazon. And I loved that. I was like, what? I'm a heartbreaker. Fantastic. I've made it. Result. So those those were two reasons. And then I think what ended up happening ultimately and why I still sing a bit, but not anymore. And I really miss it is I fell in love. And when I fell in love with my husband, in some ways, I kind of stopped needing to sing. Okay. I, the yearning for expression. And of course, when you're singing songs, you're delivering multiple emotions, joy, sadness, fear, reflection, you know, whatever it is that you're singing, there's there's multiple emotions that you learn to have to deliver as a singer. But for whatever reason, 
yeah, I didn't feel that I needed it as much. And um, that was while I was doing my master's in, in UBC. And mm-hmm. when I was beginning to get clarity on what it was I did want to do. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Thank you. If we go back to the career story on you finishing your studies and, you know, I'm interested to see how do you land your first job and, and you know, the journey from that first job to where you are now when you founded, I believe it was 2010, the, your own company. So I did work in between my master's and that was just a question of an advert and a paper and applying for it. And I worked in uh, ship brokers as the analyst for the oil and tanker trades. And I was responsible for an industry publication. So that was something that was just classic, see an advert, apply for it, get the job. Mm -hmm. But when I was at UBC and I had got interested in artisanal and small scale mining, and there weren't many people at that time in 2004 who were really studying that and working in that. And I learned about Marcelo Vega, who was the professor at UBC that was the real specialist in that. And I met one of his students, Jennifer Hinton, who remains a very dear friend and a respected colleague, one of the most inspiring women I think I've ever worked with. Wow. She's a brutal intellect and a feisty, strong woman. And um, yeah, she's amazing. But I met her for sushi and it was the first time I met her and we just immediately hit it off and she began sharing everything she knew about artisan small-scale mining. She was doing her PhD, uh, not her PhD, her master's in um, Brazil at the time on gold. So there was so much to learn from her and I was doing stuff on diamonds in Sierra Leone. We spoke so much and then she said, you know what, I really think the World Bank is looking for another intern for their communities and small-scale mining program. Let me pick up the phone to Jeffrey, who'd been her boss when she was there, see if they they would take an application. So she did that. And he said, yeah, I'll take an application. So I sent him my CV and I got the job. And that was just another woman opening a door for me because she could see a match. And I am forever grateful to her for that because to get that kind of job is is really, you know, I wouldn't have known about Chasm so much. I wouldn't have known who to write to. But she made that easy for me by saying, this is the opportunity here you go. Why don't you go for it? And ever since I've made it a priority to make time for other people who are looking for ideas as to where they might fit mm-hmm. and to help them think about, look, this is what this, maybe do this, maybe do that. Including seniors, people contact me all the time, tell them I'm not happy in my job. I'm thinking of moving. What should I do? Mm-hmm. And we'll talk it through together and yeah. you pay it back, don't you? You pay it forward. I mean, correct. <laughs> And, and I think that's been a common theme in all of these conversations that they were grateful for that network and, you know, they got so much support from people around and other, other females around. Uh, so we always encourage people listening to this podcast to, to grow that network, to go out there and to knock on doors and not be afraid of saying, I don't really know what to do. And, you know, can we talk? That's right. I think it's the most powerful way to get a job these days is to, you just ask people what they think. You're not calling up to say, will you give me a job? You're calling up to say, look, I want to change my job or I'm looking for my first job. Where do you think I should start? This is what I love. This is what I'm good at. And, you know, sometimes that leads to the person you're speaking to going, actually, we might be able to use you. Why didn't you, why didn't you send me your CV? Mm-hmm. Or, or them going, actually, speak to this person because I know they're looking for someone and you're perfect for that. Mm-hmm. And one of the staff that's come to me, came to me, she was an intern at the Danish Institute for Human Rights and a long-standing friend and colleague, again, another woman, just pinged her big CV to me and went, Stel, you've got to hire this woman. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I went, well, if you say so, then okay. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> and she is. She's amazing and a pleasure to work with. You know, so yeah. 
<laughs> so it works. And you mentioned uh, before briefly that you kind of um, landed in this industry by, by chance. Uh, how was that chance? I was doing my master's at UBC and I was doing an amazing course on environmental sustainability with Philippe LeBion and Karen Baca, who, what brains, are oh, amazing people. And um, I had to write a paper on environmental sustainability and I was like, I just don't know what to do. And I was auditing a course in human ecology, which means it doesn't count towards your degree, but you can just go and do it with, with Bill Reese, who came up with the concept of, you know, the earth has a carrying capacity for people. And, you know, there's only, you know, what overshoot, earth overshoot day is kind of derives from his thinking, his logic, it's an amazing course. And there was a guy from Rwanda there. And we, I can't even remember what the, what the topic was, but we had gone away to do some kind of breakout group and do something about human ecology. And he began telling me about conflict coltan in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I was like, what? And he began telling me about how it was impacting not just on people because of the conflict, but on gorillas. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I went, I got to learn about this. So I made that my paper and and it blew my mind. Mm-hmm. I was so moved by what I was learning. And I was like, I cannot conceive of how this has come to be. I cannot conceive of how on earth this kind of thing can be solved. I wanted to understand what the business case was for continuing to engage or to disengage from minerals in that region. And at the time, we didn't really have anything like the United Nations Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights, which today gives us clarity on that question. But because of my fundamental interest in trade and in business ethics and on the potential for the market to be a lever, to push change upstream, I asked that question and I, I studied, I wrote about it. And Philippe and Karen gave me a really high mark. Mm-hmm. And then Philippe said to me, look, I know you've written 90% of your master's with John. And I've I've been doing stuff on the Georgian Basin Futures Project around futures decision-making for policymakers on, you know, the decisions we make now lock in certain outcomes in the future that are unsustainable or more sustainable. And I nearly finished that. And Philippe said, but (laughs) I have a relationship to USAID and they have a program in Sierra Leone where called DIPAM. I can't even remember what it's called. But uh, what that meant <laughs> now, it's too long ago, said, so do, do you want to go and study peace diamonds? So it's like the almost like the, it's the post-conflict minerals piece. It's like, you know, the, these minerals that have been involved in conflict. How might they uh, actually be used alternatively to build peace? And I said, mm-hmm. of course I do. <laughs> of course I do. So I told poor John that, sorry, but I wasn't going to finish my master's thesis that he and I were doing together. Yeah. He still, I think, got value out of the work that I had done. And I was going to go to Sierra Leone. So I went to Sierra Leone and I clued up on sustainable livelihoods, clued up on political economy theory and went and stayed there for a couple of months. And that's what made the change. Excellent. And um, obviously that was the beginning of of you working in in this industry in a very niche area. I don't think that we ever had uh, any guest uh, in the podcast that you know had a, anything to do with that that part of of mining and i think it's equally important to recognize yeah. so what keeps you in the industry well i think once you start a business you've got to see the business through don't you you've got to see the business to the point where it's old enough to live without you that you have a responsibility um or you choose to say do you know what i have to close it down but it's on the one hand it's the business that keeps me in the industry i did have a wobble a few years ago mm-hmm. when i burnt out after a particularly intensive period and after many years of really, really hard work in 2018. And I took a sabbatical and I was like, I really want to get into rewilding. Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating. It's exciting. But then COVID hit and the business needed me back. <laughs> so, so I'm back. But, you know, minerals, 
will forever be like confounding and inspiring and exciting. And I think now, you know, having transitioned away from a lot of work in conflict minerals to more work in critical raw materials or transition minerals, as we call them, the opportunity for accelerating positive changes is so huge. The need is so tremendous. I feel very blessed to be at the heart of what I think is a really important thing for humanity and for nature. Correct. Yeah. And in some ways, because I know I'm good at this and because of how much expertise I have, and because there is still so much to learn as well, which is of course what keeps me in anything is that I'm constantly learning. Otherwise I just lose interest and you cannot engage me in it. Mm-hmm. That's I, that's I think what keeps me in minerals. Interesting. Um, I was in a conference not not long ago, and uh, the uh, transition energy transition was kind of compared with the arrival of cars and you know the arrival of, of the internet. As in, you know, the impact is going to have in humanity. So I completely agree with with your statement there. As we indicated, Stalin, during the introduction, you are, besides many other roles in in your life, as I've seen when I was preparing for this interview, you are the founder and CEO of Levin Resources. So what kind of brought you to commence this this adventure? So Levin Resources um, was founded in 2010, yes. And I began, after I left the World Bank, I worked in guerrilla conservation for a while. Awesome. And then I became a freelance consultant because my husband got his first job in Cambridge. And unfortunately, the charity wouldn't allow me to work remotely or flexibly. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't make that work. So I began, I, having begun as a freelance consultant, and I just got really, really busy really fast. And I was working 14-hour days, six, seven-day weeks. And I was just tearing my hair out with just how much work I had. should have put my prices up sooner. <laughs> <laughs> but I also had this ambition. <laughs> To keep learning and to keep being involved in many things. And it wasn't about territory so much, though I know many business leaders, they are very territorial. I think there's so much for us to do. We don't need to be territorial. We need to collaborate. But I just got to this point where it's like, I either say no to things or I start formally working with other people. So I decided I wanted to try some kind of cooperative of consultants where we would flexibly support each other. And when one of us was busy, too busy, the other person could could help them by doing whatever it was they needed and vice versa. And then ended up coalescing into a company called Resource Consulting Services with two guys. So we founded that and we began working together in 2007 and then founded that officially in 2008. But I fell ill with malaria in 2009 and with another complicating virus. Mm. And that made me quite ill for a year. And I found that I was unhappy in that business relationship at the same time. And so I decided that I would leave. So I left after two years and I I really hadn't made very much money in that time because I'd been unwell. I hadn't been able to do a lot of travel. And I'd also been trying to conceive a child and it took me a long time. Uh, we weren't successful at that point. So when I made the decision to leave and set up my own business, I, I told the guys and Founded eleven sources pretty much the same week, but also conceived the same week. Oh, well. <laughs> which, which was like not the right timing to found a business is when you find yourself newly pregnant. And ironically, there I was with my husband at a college dinner in Cambridge, and we went out afterwards to have a glass of wine. I remember saying to him, "Pregnant, but unaware that I was pregnant. I'm done with this trying for a baby thing." You know, of course, you forgot. <laughs> I'm done with it. I just want to focus on my career. I'm good at this. I just want to go and like travel the world and. Thought this baby business. And then, of course, a week later, it was like, Murphy. 
one of my period. And that was it. I was pregnant. Um, so interesting how uh, how stress and and just circumstances sometimes affect fertility. So yeah, so I, I had very short time to build to start building the business before I before I had my first baby. And I said, right, month three, four of my pregnancy, I brought in two interns, Christina Viegas and Agatha Surma. And Christina's now the director of mines and markets at the Act. Goodington. <laughs> she stayed in minerals and she's a, you know, she does so much in minerals. Um, she does really good work in minerals. And um, yeah, they helped me. They helped me cope with the fact that I had a, a new business and I was pregnant. Yeah, so don't do that. <laughs> don't found a business and get pregnant at the same time. It's really either one or the other, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid uh, there's not much you can do to control those things sometimes. <laughs> well, there are things called condoms. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, sorry. Maybe I shouldn't say this on your podcast, but... <laughs> But no, it, that was, it was fortunate and unfortunate. And I have to say, I, I joke about it. It was really, really hard. It was really hard. I didn't get a maternity leave with my first child. Mm-hmm. And he didn't sleep. And I couldn't concentrate on him in the way I needed to. And at the same time, I was demented with sleep exhaustion, sleep deprivation, I should say, and trying to work and build a business. Mm-hmm. And um, I managed. But I think this is why I ended up like with periods of burnout and I got meningitis then in 2017, wow. you know, because I was really immunologically compromised because I was so burnt out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So like, I think this idea that you can have it all and you can do it all is a bit naive. Mm-hmm. And I think you really need to get the right support system around you. And if, if you're founding a business, you don't make any money for the first three years. You don't have an income. And if you've got a child that you need to pay for daycare for so that you can do your business and grow your business, where does that money come from? Right, I had to use my savings, so I lived off my savings for the first three three years of Levin Source, and of course, I had a second child after two years. <laughs> Still in, in the three year period, I hadn't learned my lesson yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a hard ramp up, but um, yeah, it's been well. It's for someone who likes to learn. The biggest learning experience has been having my kids. Yeah, my God mirror to put in front of you. That's a very important point as well. And we kind of had um, one of the guests that um, had uh, three children and, uh, you know, she was also the owner of a business. And um, it was very interesting to see and to show that you can be successful in your career and you can also have a family, a successful family. But yeah, be careful with burning out. We're not superhumans at the end of the day. So we have to find that balance. I think that's right. And I think you have to really think through the trade-offs that come with that. So for example, my husband's a feminist and a very involved dad. He's an academic. He's had to slow down his academic career in order to support me and mine. We had to get au pairs. Um, we came to a point where we realized we just couldn't do this without the help of someone else. So for four years, we had au pairs. And then when we came back to Guernsey, you know, my mom has been doing as much as she can to, to help us. For example, this week I had to go to London for work and God bless her, she had the kids for two days um, for me and crashed the car on day two, taking my daughter to school. Oh, God. <laughs> I know, like, you know, the guilt, you know, so like, you know, the trade, that's what I mean. Like, they are very real. They're fine, by the way. They're totally fine. Karma well, I hope. But they're fine. Such as the character and color of my life. But that's my point is there are very real trade-offs, not just for you, but for the people who become your support system. 
And um, you really need to think that through with those people. You can't just think about yourself and go, but this is what I want. Mm -hmm. That's not fair. It's again that support system and, you know, building a, a partnership at the end of the day with, with the people around you. So we can yeah. all do, do as much as we can with our careers, but still have a family. It's not a compromise. Exactly. We finally get into to the last part of the conversation. It's, got, it's gone quick. I always like to, to kind of ask our guests, um, what would they tell to their younger selves? <laughs> Apart from uh, some of the gems that you already gave us. <laughs> I think I tell my younger self, it's all right, you will be loved. Okay. Because that's important. Mm -hmm. You will be loved. You will have a lot of fun. You will not recognize yourself because, you know, there's a lot of challenge and there's a lot of pain. And these these are the things that form us. But I, you know, I'd probably tell my younger self, what would I tell my younger self? Besides those things, I think that thing matters. Those things matter is, yeah, that money also matters. Like I spent so many years, like just enjoying what I was doing. I didn't really think about the commercial side of it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I'll do that job that pays me like, you know, £11,000 a year, whatever. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah, no, Estelle, no. Passionate about it. <laughs> that's just not going to help you later in life. <laughs> um, but I think that's very particular to myself. You know, I'm I'm driven by the love of the doing and the learning and increasingly, you know, the commercial financial security has become increasingly important as I've had children and I hit middle age, think, what about, what about pension? I would have told my younger self to open a pension sooner and put as much money into it as possible and maybe not spend quite so much on traveling yes. <laughs> and salsa lessons. I think that's a, that's a good one because I think that we all do the same. You know, we, we just focus on the traveling, you know, YOLO, and then <laughs> we forget about the more practical things. But I think that's a, that's a good advice. You need to do both, but a little bit, a little bit of pension payment earlier might have been a good idea. <laughs> Estelle, normally the follow-up question would be, uh, what would you tell those girls that are considering next step in their careers? But since I know you, you have another passion of yours is, uh, is the subject of confidence. I'm going to ask you, what would you say to those women that are perhaps having some confidence issues and they're not sure if they could enter a new industry one you roll because of those confidence uh, issues so this might be surprising for people to hear but I still at times face confidence crises I think um, if you didn't you might just feel a bit, be a bit overconfident I think it's important to sometimes question what it is that I need to do to really succeed at this the root of confidence comes from failing like you've got to learn to fail fail well pick yourself up learn from it don't repeat that mistake mm -hmm. So confidence comes from being able to take risks and know that if things go wrong, you will be able to make it okay. So it really, my risk management training from years of working in responsible business conduct now has done so much to also kind of bleeds into my own life about the decisions that we make as a family, the decisions that I make in my career. So I think in order, you know, the way I built my confidence was other than the security of, of the people around me, knowing that I had people that, that rooted for me and loved me and would support me, it came from failing mm -hmm. and then dusting myself up and getting up and going on. Whether it was being on stage and forgetting the words <laughs> and then laughing about it and, uh, you know, recovering and finding a way out of it to, I got B for God's sake. 
in my GCSEs. Mm. That really, really annoyed me. And then I got a B in my A-levels for geography. Oh, God. But I blame that on getting dumped the night before I had to submit my coursework, which I got a really bad mark. And so you know, I still blame that boyfriend for my B, but actually I should take responsibility for it, shouldn't I? But those things really affected me at the time when I was super ambitious and I expected to be straight A's and it affected my sense of who I was. That I wasn't the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I was, but I wasn't. Oh my God. But that humility is very useful. Very useful. And those are just like a couple of little silly examples really possibly, but no, that's it. And I think if you're having a confidence crisis, be kind to yourself. Sometimes our confidence crises come because something that we've relied upon is, or taken for granted that will be there suddenly wobbles. Mm-hmm. It might be that, yes, you lose a relationship or the nature of a relationship changes, or it might be that you really went for something and you didn't get it and you really wanted it. And then you start questioning, am I worthy? Why didn't I get it? I'm not good enough. Oh, I won't bother going for the next thing. Don't just keep trying, but be wise. Try and be objective. Try and think about what it is that you have to offer and try and think about how do I mitigate the risks that come from this? And you just got to get thick skin and just keep trusting that it will work out. Mm -hmm. Really good advice, I think. I know that you are very much involved in, you know, helping other women to enter these type of industries. I've listened to to many and I've read many of the articles uh, of you uh, and your company talking about this topic. And I know there are a lot of people out there, but still not there. We still have podcasts like this as an example, so because they're necessary. Mm-hmm. So what do you think that, what else we can do to help reaching men, female equality and equity at work? Speak up. It does, female solidarity does help of course, massively. I'm a huge fan of the Women in Mining Associations and I've just joined the Policy Committee for Women UK because I want to give my time to that uh, to help continuing to to support this. But I think very importantly, we need male ambassadors and um, male champions um, who also understand the ways in which gender inequality harms them, especially in the family arena and the domestic space. Um, but it you know, also harms them in the workplace, because I have a friend, for example, who's just is an architect who's just joined a new firm, and because they don't value, I think, mental health so well, mm-hmm. and because it's quite competitive, and they don't really support men to be more involved in domestic space. They don't give the flexibility. They think, well, if you're doing that, you're not serious about your job. It's harming him. Mm-hmm. He's it's not the right place for him. That culture is toxic. So we all need to be championing for work-life balance and for equality. And I think also we as business owners and as, you know, board directors need to think very carefully about the root causes of gender inequality and the decisions we can make as owners and directors for um, changing culture in our organizations and changing incentives. It's difficult for a small business like mine. So I admit we haven't got equal parental leave for men and women yet in my company, but that's something I would like us to get towards once we build you know, a more resilient organization. Really want to achieve that, for example. So there's there are things that I think we we need to do, whether we're at the director level, the owner level, or whether 
or colleagues. Yeah, very good, very good assessment of of the situation and and what's next to come and what do we need to do next. Um, but I, I always say that um, compared to when I was growing up, you know, I've been in two different industries. One was sports and football, very male dominating and and mining now. So. If I compare, you know, football when I was a, a child, you know, I had many friends that weren't allowed even to play by their own parents. So now we, we're filling stadiums that, you know, where the men normally work. And the same in mining, you know, there was not a possibility or there were very little amount of females, especially at side level that, you know, were there. And the ones that were, I heard many horror stories uh, of, you know, how were they treated. So I think that. The growth is there, development is there. Like I said before, we still have to to talk and you said speak up and I agree 100%. That's, that's something that we need to discuss it. We need to, you know, this, do this type of assessments to understand what we can do better. And, and hence, you know, I always ask the question to, to all our guests. Last question, Sal. What would you have done differently? I think the fact that nothing comes immediately to mind means that although, you know, there are still things that I would like to have had to have different now. I don't think I'd have changed my journey now. Mm-hmm. I think it's formed who I am and that's okay. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about regrets. The most painful things, and I've had some really painful things happen to me in the workplace and in my career. I wouldn't change them because they are formative and they've made me a better businesswoman. They've made me, hopefully, a better human being. And that's all we can hope for is personal growth as we move through life um, so that we can, every interaction we have, the other people around us can get the most out of it that gives them meaning and makes life an exciting and wonderful thing. You know, so, yeah, I know that's a bit of a duff answer because, you know, it'd be lovely to to point to one thing so I'd do that differently, but... I think it's a very good answer, to be fair. There is one thing. I think I should have got my director's qualification at the beginning. Okay. I did that last year, and my gosh, it's been so helpful. But it cost as much as I earned in my first year to do it, right? <laughs> when I was founding Levin Sources, like I said, I got pregnant, had my two children. I was having to put money into childcare so I could work didn't have surplus funds for education at that point. But I think if I could have had it then and paid it off 10 years later, <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be really helpful. I think it would have helped me achieve my goals for my business faster. That's good advice. Because I, I basically learned it all by doing, yeah. Yeah. As HR specialist, I always get you know questions related to education, especially you know later in our careers. Do I continue investing? So I think that's that's a, an important testimonial of of the answer. Oh, definitely. I'm editing a book at the moment um, with Fabiana Di Lorenzo and Victoria Gromwald, who used to work with me, and I'm really excited about it. And I was just thinking maybe I should use this as a pathway into a PhD because I never did a PhD. I was too anxious to get straight into it. Yeah. But maybe if I'm co-editing a book and there'll be writing as part of that, maybe I, I could I could do that. My husband, who's a professor at Cambridge, would be like, "Don't be so ridiculous." <laughs> like you also need to sleep, but I'm mulling that over because yeah, I still have that hunger for education and for learning. Excellent. And I think, I think whether you do that informally or formally, that's what matters, but definitely 
when you're 80, go and do a PhD in astronomy. Why not? Like, you know, we need to grow. Go for it. And Estelle, with that, uh, we reached the end of uh, of our conversation. Uh, Thank you so much for the the pearls of wisdom that you gave us today. And and thank you for for reading the podcast. Paloma, thank you so much. What a privilege. And to anybody out there, just go get it. Go do it. Yes. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to Diary of a Female Leader. If you enjoyed our episode and want to contribute to sharing these incredible stories of females leading in business, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our next interview. You can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn by searching Diary of a Female Leader. Until next time.